Today we're reading from Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 25. That's on page 2 in your pew Bibles. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and there shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Genesis chapter 2, we're in our third week now in this series, and so if your Bible is still open to that, you can be taking a look at that, find that again on your phone, whatever that looks like for you, and we're going to dig right in. So I want us to begin by thinking about how many people you interact with on a given day. If you can come up with sort of a mental number, what do you think is the number of different people that you interact with each day? Get that in your mind. Turns out that studies show that most Americans have about 35 separate connections, interactions to manage on a given day. And this, of course, includes your spouse, roommate, kids, people at work, even the barista at your local coffee shop. And of course, this is just an average. This 35 number is just an average. There may be people here who have more than that, depending on your stage of life, maybe less. But for the most part, it's about 30 to 40 people. And here's an interesting thing. If you're a part of a church, that number actually goes up another five to six connections. People in church tend to have more connections to manage on a given day. Now, that's just in one day, right? Many of us have multiple, even hundreds of connections that go beyond that. We just may not interact with them throughout each day. That's a lot of connections. And that total number of connections, of course, can increase dramatically over time. It can increase if you move. It can increase depending on the season of life that you are in. And, of course, with things like social media, there's almost an infinite number of connections that we can have. We are very connected. And yet, a couple of interesting things about that. For many people, all of this connection can actually create a higher level of anxiety. And at kind of a silly level, it creates questions about, you know, things like, who do I send the Christmas card to? And who do I invite to my birthday party? And if I don't invite them, am I going to have one of those awkward moments that Scott was just talking about, right? Maybe on a more serious level, there's questions of hospitality. How many people can I actually host in my home in a week, a month, a year? How many more meetings can I attend? How many teams can I commit to? How many things can I be a part of? And again, if you're a part of a church, how many people can you care for? How many prayer requests can you respond to? Connection actually creates more anxiety for us. Here's the other thing. It also doesn't alleviate loneliness. Fifteen years ago now, Robert Putnam wrote the classic book called Bowling Alone. And he's looking at a number of phenomena in our society. The biggest one that he hones in on is this idea of social capital and how our social capital is on the decline. Social capital is the rich connections that provide deep levels of companionship 
and care. This is the neighbor that brings you soup when you're sick or that friend around the corner who watches your kids if you have to go run an errand. This is the group of people that walk through life with you, the ups and the downs, the good and the bad. Social capital is on the decline. We suffer from what a lot of commentators are calling a crowded loneliness. A crowded loneliness where we are hyper-connected and yet relationally deficient at the same time. This was all driven home for me a couple years ago. I used to work in college ministry. I was a campus minister at Boston University. And at the end of each year, they would get all of us who were involved in student campus life together and kind of give a briefing on how the year went. And this, I think, was like 2012. At that meeting, they talked about how that year, that school year, for the first time, they had made more calls and sent more kids to the hospital for mental health issues than for alcohol issues. And it was the first time that they'd seen that since they started keeping track of these kinds of things. And as they unpacked that for us, what they had discovered is that there was what they called a depression epidemic on campus. And at the root of it was loneliness and a lack of meaningful relationships. Think about that for a minute. This is a school with 30,000 students in a city with 250,000 college students in a city of a million people. Students who are more wired and connected than any previous generation suffering from loneliness and a lack of meaningful relationships. So the question is, how is it that we can be so connected and so lonely at the same time? Now we're, again, a couple weeks into the this series in Genesis, this journey through the book of Genesis. A couple of things to review here real fast. So far we've seen that God is the creator of all things and that he creates a good, well-functioning home to be in relationship with his creation and in particular with human beings, his icons, his image bearers. We've also seen that this book was written for the people of Israel, the people of Israel who had been rescued from slavery in Egypt and were now in the desert making their way to the land that God had promised them. So this, again, a group of people who had been in slavery for 400 years in a foreign country, in a foreign culture. And so Genesis is their origin story, okay? providing answers to these really deep human questions. Who am I and what am I doing here? Now, as we get into chapter 2, there's a lot of questions that tend to come up for people. Questions like, why is there another account of the creation of human beings? How is this one different from the first one? Are there contradictions? Do they fit together? So there are a couple different ways that we can look at this, a couple different ways to read Genesis chapter 2. One of them is to just see it sequentially. Genesis 2 is just what happens after Genesis 1, simply what happens next in the story. Another way to read this is to look at it as Genesis 1 is cosmic, describing cosmic creation. Genesis 2 is speaking to personal creation. It's almost as if the camera is sort of pulled in on the action. And we get a more detailed account, particularly of day 6. A third way to read Genesis 2 is called synoptic or synoptically. This is from the Greek word meaning to view together or to hold together and it's the idea of looking at the same thing but from a different perspective this is a common thing in scripture the gospels in fact function this way matthew mark luke and john all tell the story of jesus 
but they have their own flavor, their own emphasis, their own perspective on that story. Now, the big issue with Genesis 2 begins at verse 5. So if you have your Bible, take a look at that with me. Verse 5, we read this. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, then the Lord God formed the man of dust. So one of the big issues here, of course, is that the order of events has changed. Now all of a sudden the creation of man is coming before the creation of animals and plants. What's up with that? Next big question has to do with the totality of the events that we see in chapter 2. If this really is sequential, if this really is a sort of you know, pulled-in version of day 6, how does all this happen in one day? The creation of Adam, the creation of the animals, the naming of the animals, the creation of Eve, all that stuff, how does it happen in 24 hours? It's like the show 24. How does all that happen in one day? Now, a big, big clue comes in verse 4. Take a look at verse 4 with me. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Two big things to take from this verse. The first is this. This is the first time where we see the more personal name for God used in the book of Genesis. Yahweh is used for the first time here in verse 4. And we talked about this last Sunday, if you were with us. The name for God used throughout chapter 1 is Elohim. And it's this more general, generic name for God, kind of like how we in English might say God instead of Jesus, Lord, Savior, King. But here, for the first time, the more personal name of God is used, Yahweh. And in your English Bibles, when it says Lord God and Lord is all in caps, that's usually a sign that they're translating Yahweh. So the second big clue then is this phrase, the generations, or this is the account. Depending on your translation, it might say it that way. This is the Hebrew phrase, toledot. Okay, the toledot is a critical literary marker that's used all throughout the book of Genesis. In fact, it'll be used 11 more times from here on out. And it's almost always in connection to a person. And so you'll read something like, these are the generations of Noah. These are the generations of Abraham. This is the first time that it is used, and it is the only time it doesn't refer to a specific person. So... What's going on here? In verse 4, the author, God speaking through Moses, is saying, hey, pay attention. Something new is happening. Something different is happening here. And this is where I have to work in my Lord of the Rings analogy, okay? Every series, you got to have a Lord of the Rings analogy, right? <laughs> if you've seen the movies, you know that there's this moment at the very beginning of the first movie, this voiceover with one of the elf ladies is kind of giving you the background on the ring and how the ring was formed and why it has power and why people want it. And then all of a sudden, after that sort of narration is done, you're in the Shire and you're meeting the hobbits and Gandalf. And that's kind of where the story starts, right? In the Shire. In a very similar way, Genesis 1 is giving us this big sweeping background, right? This incredible description of functional creation. And then in Genesis 2, the clock starts. The story really begins. The Toledot. The account of the generations of. So I think you can read this text in any of those three ways, but I find that combining that cosmic personal and in particular the synoptic reading is incredibly helpful and very important. 
the same story being told from a different perspective. And again, a technique used throughout Scripture to sort of say, hey, pay attention to this. There's something a little bit different that you're going to get from this. And so for us, the question is, what is God trying to tell us about himself and about the creation of man and woman in this more personal, synoptic account of creation? So let's start looking a little bit more deeply into that. I think it's yet again important and helpful to look at some other stories that were floating around in the ancient Near East at that time. So in the Babylonian story, the Enuma Elish in particular, there's a lot of overlap and correlations between these two stories. In the Enuma Elish, humans are created from clay, similar to how Adam is created from the dust. But humans are also created from the blood and spit of the gods. It's kind of gross, right? <laughs> now, humans are also created, we're told, for a purpose, and that purpose is to dig irrigation ditches. It's pretty awesome, right? <laughs> So the Enuma Elish is a story of violence. It's a story that communicates that human beings were evil from creation. And it's a story that communicates that human beings were of very little worth to their creators. Now hold that in comparison to what we read in Genesis chapter 2. Looking at verse 7 again. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and then skip down to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it, and keep it. This is a very different picture than these other stories that we see in the ancient Near East. Okay, Yahweh creates intimately and lovingly this image of breathing into the nostrils. Again, sounds kind of weird to us, but in the Hebrew text, it's a very intimate language. God provides water. There's a river flowing through Eden. There's no need to dig a ditch in this garden. He provides them with water, a good place to live. Yahweh gives man freedom and choice. And we will talk a lot more about this next Sunday. But for now, we'll just say that that's what these two trees that are named represent, freedom and choice. And then Yahweh gives the man good work to do, not just mindless ditch digging, but as we talked about last Sunday, partnership with God to bring the flourishing of creation. Then, finally, Yahweh is compassionate to the plight of the man, the Adam, Adam. Verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now, we've seen repeated throughout Genesis chapter 1 the phrase, it was good, it was good, it was very good, right? Here, for the first time, God declares something to be not good. It is not good that man is alone. I think this helps clarify again for us what goodness means. Remember, we've said that goodness does not equal perfection. The way that we tend to think of perfection is sort of a moral thing. Okay, man's aloneness is not sinful. 
but he's also not functioning the way that he was intended to. And we've seen human beings are intended to function in a web of right relationships, right relationship to God, to each other, and to the rest of creation. This is the biblical idea of shalom, a web of right relationship. Dr. Neil Planiga explains it better than I ever could. The webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets call shalom. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed, a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. Shalom is the way things ought to be. Now, before Eve, creation is not there yet. To be in right relationship with other humans, there needs to be other humans. So what happens next? The text goes on to describe Adam's naming of the animals. And part of this naming is that good work that God gives Adam. But clearly another part of this naming is a search. A search for a companion, for a partner, for a helper. Verse 20, but for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. Now, this word that we translate helper is the Hebrew word azer, and it is a very rich, strong, robust word, and we need to talk about it a little bit here. When we hear the word helper in English, we tend to think of like assistant, right? A maid, a valet, a secretary, something along those kinds of lines. I think of my three-year-old daughter wanting to help me wash the dishes. It's a lot of fun, but not necessarily effective. <laughs> Okay, but this word helper, this word azer, is a rich, robust word. It's used often throughout the Old Testament and almost, well, I would say this, the majority of the uses are to describe God. It talks about God in some way. Psalm 33, we read this, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help. He is our azer and our shield. Now, it's important to always take words in their context. And so look at some of the other ways that God is described in Psalm 33, he is upright, just, righteous, the creator of heaven and earth, commander of armies, king, counselor, deliverer, savior, helper. Okay, again, this is a strong word. The other way the word is used in the Old Testament is in military terminology. An azer was an ally, someone who would come alongside to help fight a battle. So how does God provide an azer for Adam? The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. The word rib here is actually better translated as side. You get this sense of partnership, of being side by side. She's not taken from his head or his feet, implying superiority or inferiority but from his side they are partners companions they're to help each other they are to fight alongside each other and for each other they are what you might call intimate allies when they see each other for the first time adam bursts into song this is the first pop song in recorded history he says 
This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And there's a lot of uh, Hebrew sort of idioms and wordplay being used in this verse. We don't have time to get into all of that. Essentially what Adam is saying is, at last, a helper, a partner, a companion. And then we get this commentary on marriage that closes out our text for this morning. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. We'll talk about verse 24 in a moment, but let's focus on the end there. Okay? The whole thrust of this story culminates in verse 25. This is one of the most important statements in the entire creation narrative. Man and woman were naked and not ashamed. Nothing to hide, nothing to be afraid of, nothing to be ashamed of. This is what we mean by shalom. Right relationship, open, honest relationship with God and with each other. You were designed, created to live completely unashamed of who you are. Designed to live in this naked openness to God and to each other. Now, of course, in our sinful, broken state, it is not wise to make ourselves naked to everyone, right? Both literally and metaphorically. But here's the thing. That's not because you need to be ashamed of yourself. It's because other people, in our brokenness, we may not handle that nakedness properly. Okay, but with certain people in the right context and within proper boundaries, we can get a glimpse of this. We can live shamelessly. And of course, the best place to start is with God himself. In the New Testament, we learn that because of Jesus, we can with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Many of us carry tremendous amounts of shame. And there's all different kinds of reasons for that. It comes from all sorts of different places. But the good news of Jesus is that you don't have to live with shame anymore. You can approach the throne of grace with confidence. You can receive mercy. You can find grace in your time of need. You can live free of shame. It begins, though, with reconciliation, restoration of that right relationship with God. More on that in a moment, but let's turn our attention back to verse 24. Okay? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So there's a couple of things that we need to say here about marriage and about singleness, and then most importantly, about our mission. So first, a couple thoughts on marriage. Marriage, the text makes very clear, was designed for one man and one woman. Second, marriage is not defined by children. Children are great. They are a blessing. They are a lot of fun sometimes. But they don't make the marriage. They're not even mentioned here in this text. A childless marriage is still very much a marriage because the essence of marriage is oneness, one fleshness. 
this verse is often used to talk about sex and why God created sex and, and how it's great and all that stuff. And this is good and true, but it's so much bigger than this, okay? We need to see this in the larger context of these first two chapters of Genesis. So again, God, the creator of all things, has created an ordered world. He's created a good world. Humans are the pinnacle of this creation in that they are icons. They carry the image of God. And we've seen that's not just a representative thing. It's not a look-alike thing. That is a purpose thing. It is a mission thing. We exist to work with God in the right ordering of the creation to bring flourishing. Now, what does that have to do with sex and marriage and being one flesh? Well, it becomes important to remember that Adam is not looking for a sexual partner. He's not looking for a wife. He doesn't even have a category for that yet. He's looking for an Azair, a helper, an ally, someone to work with and to fight alongside. Now, of course, it just so happens that God in his goodness has made sex part of that. But again, we too often reduce the relationship to that. Okay, this call to be one flesh is so much bigger than that. Remember, what did God say was not good? Was it Adam's celibacy? No. <laughs> it was his aloneness. So the word here for one flesh is the Hebrew word akad. Everybody say akad. It's a fun one to say. This word is also used to describe God, in the prayer that comes a little bit later on in the story, Deuteronomy, the Shema, we read this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Lord, Yahweh, is Echad. Oneness, Echadness, if you will, is not just about man and woman getting together, it is essential to God's character and to his hope and dream for his creation. Scott McKnight says, because God is a community of three in one, God's work is always relational and community focused. There is a unique thing that marriage does here. Marriage is a window into the character of God. But let me say again, echadness is so much bigger than marriage because it is about this deep connection that we all long for, that we all feel, that we all want, that we all desire, and that we were created for. There are some marriages that are lacking in echadness. And there are some single folks who do way more to bring unity and connection, shalom to the world than some of us who are married. So let me say again, this is bigger than marriage. Marriage is an important part of this. It is a picture of this, but it is bigger than marriage. Here's why. We live in a world that is not a cod. We live in a world that is broken and fragmented. This is why we experience disconnection and anxiety and crowded loneliness. Yes, we are created for connection. We're more connected than ever before. It is not good for us to be alone, but we are lonely. We experience this deep disconnection because shalom has been vandalized. Our akkad with God and with others has been torn apart. We no longer work as allies, as azares, but more often as enemies and competitors. 
And so what this world is crying out for is for icons, God's image bearers who will fight for Akkad, who will work together to restore shalom and oneness, who will reflect the character of God in the deep connections and the rich community that they build. Our one God created us to be one. Not in some weird hippie kind of way, but in a deeply connected, self-giving, seeking the goodness of the other kind of way, a way that's modeled for us by Jesus. In fact, when Jesus prays specifically for us, and when I say us, I literally mean those of us sitting in the room right now, what did he pray for? John 17, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. This is the mission each and every one of us has been called to participate in. It's way bigger than a marriage thing. So how are you contributing to this mission? How are you contributing to shalom? It all begins with your relationship with God. But once we are reconciled to God, we become what I would call secret agents of shalom, contributing to this mission this mission of God to bring people, to bring his family back together. And so the question is, are you in? Are you participating in that mission? Let's pray. Father, if we're being honest, a lot of us struggle with feeling disconnected from people and probably from you as well. And so, God, I pray this morning in particular that every one of us here would know your deep love for us, how much you want to be in relationship with us, how much you desire to be one with us. If there are people here who have never experienced that before, never known that before, God, I pray that they would know and experience that this morning. And then, God, we confess that in many ways we probably contribute to the brokenness and the fragmentation of the world in all kinds of different ways, and yet we yearn for connection and we yearn to be a part of bringing things back together. So help us individually and as a church community to be whole, to be one, to reflect your character to the, the city of Oakland, to the world around us. May this church be a place that contributes to the flourishing, to the shalom of the city, to our neighbors, to the people that we interact with on each given day, God. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.